So we turn in our scriptures to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and dive into what is considered one of the more difficult and controversial sections of scripture um, because everybody has an opinion and very few people agree with each other with regard to this because as you can notice in verse 3 it talks about the man of lawlessness or is found in other passages the Antichrist. Now I'll just let me just, just try to describe the immensity of this topic. Um, I have here three different books that I looked at this week. This one's called, it's from uh, Oxford University Press called Naming the Antichrist. Subtitled, The History of an American Obsession. <laughs> it's an entire history of our country's uh, obsession with trying to figure out who this Antichrist is. It's very secular, very historical, very boring. Um, I didn't even try to read it all, read at it more than anything else. Then there's this massive 600-page volume by Sam Storms called Kingdom Come. It's an amillennial interpretation of the end times. But you get into the very back and you have an entire 20 plus page section on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 that we're looking today. 20 pages in the midst of this massive volume. Then to top it all off, we have this book by Kim Riddlebarger called The Man of Sin. It's an entire book on the Antichrist. If you want to read one, this is the one to read because it's very conservative, very biblical, well, you know, well written. Um, it's overwhelming, the topic itself. And the more I dug into this, the more inadequate I felt as I was trying to as I do here, I try to synthesize everything that I come across and then cram it into one hour. And <laughs> the enormity of this, I thought, well, I could break it up into two weeks, but then where do I break it? And then I started listening to a few sermons on, from various teachers. John MacArthur alone, I think, had four sermons, four straight weeks on this passage. Um, because it's an American obsession. And there needs to be some sort of biblical foundation, biblical correctness that's brought to this topic so that we don't go off and get lost in the vast um, uh, swamp. As I was preparing this earlier in the week, I actually created the handout that you have. And you notice on page two, I have the entire text of 1 John chapter 2 included. Well, I realized I have no time to go through it, all of chapter 2 of 1 John with you, um, other than to say when we get to 1 John in our chronological study, we'll do this again, because you will have forgotten everything I've said, because it'll be at least 10 years <laughs> by the time we get to that, since we have to go through all of Romans and all of the Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and Hebrews, etc., etc., before we get to this. By then, this will be all new to you again. Uh, just like it will be for me. But if you're interested, and you should, after we've studied our Second Thessalonians passage, 
read this text because they complement each other. They talk to each other. I found uh, other studies that in, a, in an attempt to help lay the groundwork for the, this passage went all the way back to Daniel chapter 9 and studied the Daniel, Daniel's 70 weeks and tried to do the numerology of figuring out exactly what those weeks meant and how many days they were. They were the calculations are extraordinary if you can follow the math, but I don't want to do that either uh, because it's not in this text. So I kept coming back to it and thinking, well, Steve, just focus on the text. What does Second First Thessalonians chapter two, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter two, have to say? And why is Paul saying it? And what is he saying? Rather than trying to grasp the enormity of this passage and become a um, self-styled expert. By the way, I ran across a lot of self-styled experts in my reading. Um, I just thought we would focus here and then take, yeah, we'll, we'll take a little excursus and a little journey into the Antichrist itself. But let's just start with the text. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the second coming, and our being gathered together to him, now notice that phrase, gathered together to him, suggests the rapture, that we being gathered together to him. Not that we're gathered together to worship him, but we're gathered together to him. So if you want to look at that in, in detail, you kind of say, well, maybe he's talking about the coming of the Lord and the rapture. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed or excited, depending on your translation, either by a spirit, number one, a spoken word, number two, or a letter seeming to be from us, number three. If you remember last week, we talked about why did Paul write Second Thessalonians? Because he had already addressed all these topics on the second coming in the first letter. Evidently, there have been either new teachers or fraudulent teachers that had come into the church and began to um, promote uh, alternative viewpoints of what Paul had said. Because... It says here, either by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, that it's already come, and you guys missed it. You weren't ready. You weren't prepared. Jesus has already come back, and oh yeah, he, he, you know, he swung, by, swung by, ate dinner, and left. He's, he's already gone. You missed it. Too bad. You know, and Paul was wrong the whole time. Well, so Paul is now writing this section of Scripture to correct the error that he has heard that's being passed around inside the Thessalonian church, a.k.a. that Jesus has already come. Now, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, this would be like, um, let's say Pastor Jim does an entire series on the Incarnation, that Jesus is divine. Then he goes on vacation or a sabbatical for a year. Let's say he leaves the church for a year. And 
whoever was in charge of bringing in new teachers or new preachers or pulpit supply, whatever, a series of preachers began coming into our church and began preaching that Jesus was not divine and that we've been wrong all along. And these would be people with you know, many initials after their names of all their, their degrees and their, the books that they have written and all of that. And something has crept into the church that's just an error. Pastor Jim, wherever he is, hears about this. And he writes the church a letter saying, what is going on, people? You know better than this. Can you see the scenario? I mean, my understanding is that many years ago, this would be in the early 90s, um, the King James only controversy had been sweeping across the country in American churches that the only Bible you should use is the King James Bible because it had been re-inspired in 1611. And that controversy landed in this church. There was a small group Bible study where one person was very adamant about it and infected the entire small group. That small group began becoming evangelists among the congregation and Pastor Tim had to address it and say, wait a minute, where did this come from? And had to squash <coughs> error in the, in the congregation before it spread too far and began tearing people apart. This is why this letter is so important for Paul to write to the Thessalonian church. He is trying to say, be calm, have peace. God is in control. <coughs> So let's discuss the understanding of how this is all going to play out. So, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. He's kind of hammering his point there, isn't he? For that day, the second coming, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat at the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Let's break this down a little bit. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes. That word rebellion, it's the Greek word apostasia apostasia which we get the word what apostasy a falling away as the King James uh, uh, translates it now that particular word well I need to back up a little bit just so that you can get a little bit of better context of where and why that one word and all, everything else we're going to study here starts uh, or is based on your theology or understanding of how the end times works. Bear with me. This will be uh, rapid, simplistic, and not nuanced. So we'll just, just kind of lay it all out there. Typically, and I'm just what I'm going to write up here is a chart of a typical or more common understanding of the end times. 
So we have the cross of Christ is here, and then we have this long timeline, and here is the final judgment. Okay. There is the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the end times. And this is a very common, uh, actually it's probably the most uh, rampant, if you want to use that word, the most common understanding of the end times. You have, you know, whatever goes along, and then here comes, right here, the rapture of the church. This follows what you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, talking about being caught up. Alright, so this is before the tribulation. So the idea is that the church is caught up, is brought brought out of the world, the dead in Christ rise, and they all join Christ in heaven. Then comes the tribulation. Then comes the second coming. And then comes the millennium. Uh, M-I-L-L-I-N-N-E N-N-I-U-M. Okay. I hate spelling that word. Okay, the millennium. Now, does that make sense? That's your typical understanding. This would be... This was brought into popularity by uh, Schofield and Schofield Study Bible, also known as a dispensational approach to the end times. Our understanding of this entire passage is going to hinge on where you think the rapture occurs. And I'll explain that in a minute. Because there are there is the post tribulational premillennial position that eliminates the rapture happening here and has it happen with the second coming. Does that make sense? So this is post trib pre-millennium. Alright, does that make sense? The reason why this is important is that I ran into a bunch of teachers, I mean a lot of teachers, who were pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, who said, you know, don't worry about figuring out who the Antichrist is, you'll be gone anyway. So why worry about it? Oh yeah, we have to teach teach it and go through it because it's in the scripture, but it doesn't matter to you because you are in the church. But then you have a whole bunch of other teachers, people like John Piper and others, who say, oh no, it's this way. We need to know because we're going to be in it, the tribulation. So you have those who think we're in, that the church isn't going to be in the tribulation and those who think it isn't. And it depends on how you interpret this man of lawlessness, this antichrist. Now, that is a common pre-trib, pre-millennial position. Just for the sake of uh, uh, fi- finishing the, uh, the whole thing, 
you get to uh, remove this, take all this off, and you have the post millennium position says we're already in the tribulation and none of this is going to happen until the end. And then you have the amillennial that says the entire thing is symbolic. And then at the very end. But we'll get into that when we go to the book of Revelation. 25 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Better stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs> so, to go back to what I was trying to describe here, that's why I wrote up that chart, is that how you interpret 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Oh, by the way, there's my 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and your understanding of the Antichrist, why is it important is going to determine whether or not you believe that you're going to live through it, the tribulation, or not. One fellow said, why does Paul describe in detail the person of the Antichrist to prepare believers to recognize him if we're not going to be around to recognize him? And I kind of had to stop myself and go, wow, that's interesting. I had never thought of that before. Uh, that's a good point. But I'm not here to try to convince you one way or the other. You get to make up your own minds and be experts. I'm going to stand here and go, I don't know. But you have your choice. You can figure it out. But it does color how you're going to view this section of Scripture. The day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Remember I said that's the Greek word apostasia, falling away. Ken Wiest, in his word study, works very hard to show that that word does not mean rebellion or falling away, but means departure. Which means it's the rapture. So he's trying to shade the meaning here so that word, unless the rapture comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's again very critical to your understanding of your end times on this chart. And you have someone like that who is considered one of the great New Testament Greek scholars of history is using that particular word to help bolster his position. And you have those that agree with him and those that disagree. I mean, I read a full two-page excursus by him on that word, trying to figure it out. Yes? Is it the same Greek word as in the first verse, where it says, says gathered together? And, and no. So it's a different Greek word. Yes. But he it's, says it. He says it means departed. Thing. Not rapture, but means departed. But means the same thing, that it's a gathering up and a departure. Like you find in First Thessalonians chapter 5, saying we're all going to be caught up. So you can see how scholars are trying their best. And I'm not mocking Ken Wiest. He could be right. There's no definitive answer to the meaning of the word apostasia in this context. 
But let's put that aside for a minute and look at the second half of the verse. Until the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, we say, oh, this is a study of the Antichrist. Well, the Antichrist isn't named here. That word is not used here. It is the phrase, man of lawlessness. Antichrist, as a word, is only used four times in the entire New Testament. And it's in the passage I handed you on page two. The Antichrist is used in 1 John chapter 2, three times, and in 2 John, verse 7, one time. All four in the letters of John and nowhere else. And it is the Greek word antichristos. There are other uses of the word, uh, so you have antichristos. There is also the Greek word pseudo-Christos used much more frequently. It's actually used by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 24 and in Mark 13, 22 where he says there will be false Christs and false prophets among you. You know, I've always find it interesting. You know, Jesus never called himself Christ, did he? Never. He was given that title. Christ is not his last name. Bar-Joseph is his last name. He was Jesus Bar-Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. Christ is not his last name. We use it as a title, as a praise, as a, um, a way of designating Jesus as the Messiah. What title did Christ give himself? Son of man. Now it's interesting... Look at the verse here. The man of lawlessness is revealed a, or the, son of destruction, not the son of man. So he's the son of destruction or son of perdition, depending on your translation. And the son of perdition is over in John 17, 12, describing Judas as a son of perdition, an evil one. This is not a compliment this is a, dis, a description of how destructive this man of lawlessness is. John MacArthur said this. He goes, Human history has had its share of evil leaders, but one is coming who will surpass them all, both in the extent of his power and the evil of his person. He will be the most fiendish, wicked, powerful man ever to walk the earth. He is known in scripture by many names. He is the Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, Ezekiel 38. The little horn of Daniel in in Daniel 7, uh, 7 and 8. The prince who is to come, Daniel 9. The king who does as he pleases, Daniel 1. The foolish, worthless shepherd, Zechariah 11, and the beast in Revelation 11, 13, 14, 19, etc. This is that man of lawlessness, this person who is coming, who is a son of destruction, and in verse 4, who will oppose and exalt himself against everything and proclaim himself to be God. So I want to play a game. Let's call it Pin the Tail on the Antichrist. Let's figure out who it is today, right now. 
we can just prepare ourselves. First, we have to start back in history. <clears throat> in AD 37 to 41, Emperor Caligula was in charge. And if you think about when this letter was written, it was written about 10 years later. So if we want to take our own mental thinking, we were in year 2019, we can imagine that something happened in 2009, everyone in this room is going to remember that incident vividly. So 10 years earlier, Emperor Caligula tried to set his statue of himself inside the Jerusalem temple. The Jews were not very happy about it and rebelled, rose up, and there was a slaughter and all sorts of other things, but the, the, um, the statue was never actually placed. I think the Jewish or the uh, Roman procurator at the time and probably one of the Herods said, um, don't be stupid. You know, this is, one, this is one step over the line. And by the way, let me give you a little history lesson. About a hundred and, well, almost 200 years earlier, Antiochus Epiphanes did this. The Greek ruler of the Seleucids at the time, Antiochus Epiphanes, in 167 BC, came into Jerusalem, walked into the Holy of Holies, and placed a statue of Zeus on top of the altar and then sacrificed a pig before the altar. The Jews were blasé about it. <laughs> no, they weren't. They rose up under their leader, Maccabee, and the Maccabean revolt threw off the entire rule of the Greeks, created the Maccabean Empire, and in 164 BC, they cleansed the temple re-established the temple in its purity and celebrated what is now called Hanukkah. So every year since 164 BC, the Jews have celebrated the memory of cleansing the temple of evil. So here we have Paul writing to the Thessalonian church. Some are Jews, some are not but they all have a collective memory because every single year they talk about the cleansing of the temple. And just 10 years earlier, the emperor tried to mess with it again like a man of lawlessness. In fact, you find in Mark 13, 14, Jesus said, an abomination, abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not to be. suggesting that there's something wrong in this world and you know there could be allusions to this. So that's a little bit of background. In July 1981 a preacher on Southwest Radio named Momar Gaddafi as the Antichrist. He was wrong. I have a book right here. I joined the publishing world as a college student in 1981, and this was the very first best-selling book I dealt with 
It kept selling and rolling off the shelves like crazy. Anybody remember this book called When Your Money Fails? It sold 700,000 copies by a self-styled um, prophecy expert who basically says that the 666 is taking over the world because she had, I mean, there's pictures here of labels from a Hong Kong shirt manufacturer that has a brand of 666 in it. The ship that opened the Suez Canal was ship number 666. Uh, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on in ad nauseum and names Anwar Sadat as the Antichrist. Anwar Sadat was assassinated in 1982 and the book continued to sell. Mm. I just, that just goes beyond comprehension. But to give you an idea, I mean, a best-selling book will sell 50, 100,000 copies. This sold 700,000 copies as a self-published book that was priced double the price of any other book of this size and, and nature. It was cost $7 in 1981. So imagine a small book like this today costing $15. That's the comparison. Didn't matter. People bought it like candy. So Anwar Sadat was one of them. Oh, gee, guess he was wrong. And yes, I am mocking these people. They deserve it. So I came across an article, which I thought was very fun. It, said, it, it says, the seven most common uh, winners of Pin the Tail on the Antichrist. What do you think, or who do you think, is the number one most often named Antichrist in history? Uh, he's uh, fourth, actually, third. The Pope. Every single Pope has been identified as the Antichrist. Partly because if you look back in this passage, you have, uh, get back to my, my text, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship and takes his seat in the temple of God, suggesting that Rome is that seat and who's sitting there, but it's the Pope. I mean, both Martin Luther and John Calvin identified the Pope as the Antichrist. Martin Luther, quote, we are convinced that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. You should know that the Pope is the real, true, final Antichrist of whom the entire scripture speaks, whom the Lord is beginning to consume with the spirit of his mouth and will very soon destroy and slay with the brightness of his coming for which we are waiting. That was 500 years ago. John Calvin, in his Institutes, so this wasn't just some side letter. This is his most famous work, his systematic theology, which is a foundation of much of our understanding of theology, John Calvin wrote in Book 4, Chapter 2, Section 12, Daniel and Paul had predicted that the Antichrist would sit in the temple of God. The head of that cursed and abominable kingdom in the Western Church we affirm to be the Pope. 
When his seat is placed in the temple of God, it suggests that his kingdom will be such that he will not abolish the name of Christ or the church. Hence, it appears that we by no means deny that churches may exist, even under his tyranny. But he has profaned them by sacrilegious impiety, afflicted them by cruel depotism, corrupted and almost terminated their existence by false and pernicious doctrines, like poisonous potions in such churches. Christ lies half buried, the gospel is suppressed, piety exterminated, and the worship of God almost abolished. In a word, they are altogether in such a state of confusion, they exhibit a picture of Babylon rather than the holy city of God. Calvin is nothing except opinionated. But that was his position 500 years ago. Um, Pope Francis right, right, right now is being named by a lot of pundits because he's so loved and beloved and he's starting to uh, change many of the uh, moral fiber uh, positions in the Catholic Church. So people are saying, ah, see, he's going to be the one. Another one was Hitler, as you mentioned, very common for obvious reasons, but he's dead. So his, his reign didn't last very long and it certainly didn't cover the entire world. Um, who else do you think might be in this top seven? Think Roman emperor who really hated Christians, Nero. Nero is, is actually consistently named in some, uh, in some works as the Antichrist for those who believed, that, who believed that the book of Revelation was really all about the year 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. So that Nero came into power, Christians were persecuted, that was the tribulation, then came the destruction of the temple and that was the end and now we're living in a... Um, almost a symbolic period. It's one of the one of the theories that's out there. And also, if you take Nero's name in Greek and translate it into Hebrew, it has a numerical value of 666. However, if you take Nero's name in Latin and transliterate it into Hebrew, it's 616, so it doesn't quite work. Another very common one is Napoleon. I mean, he took over pretty much all of Europe and controlled it. And part of this comes from that great scholastic um, uh, shining light, Nostradamus, who predicted there will be three Antichrists. Napoleon was the first, Hitler is the second, and the third hasn't come yet for those who look into Nostradamus' predictions and give it clarity. I hope you're not one of them, but that's another one. Another on the list is every American president since George Washington, except Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, no one said he was the Antichrist. He wasn't around long enough and he was too nice. Uh, but you have FDR, JFK, Nixon, Reagan, Clinton, Obama, the Bushes, all of them. Trump is so widely hated by so many people, they don't think there's any way he could be the Antichrist. But you see the chaotic nature of this? It's almost, you know, oh, who's in charge? That must be the guy. 
uh, I came across another uh, article that had six different leaders in the British Parliament that were named as possible ones who were going to be it. And then it said five years later, three of them were no longer in, you know, one of the, in the legislature. Uh, one of them was dead, and the other one, well, he had absolutely no influence anymore. Any, anyway, it's like these guys are trying so hard. So there's another one. It's actually very common, and I have an entire book about him. Um, yes, this is an entire book. Henry Kissinger. Do you remember? Yeah, some of you are nodding your heads. When he was named as the Antichrist, why? Because he was doing such a great amount of peace work in an effort to try to calm the world. And so, <laughs> I actually have the chart. It's really quite extraordinary here. If you take the uh, numerical way of, of calculating Kissinger's thing, if you take the letter A and give it a value of 6, and letter B, you get a value of 12. And letter C, you get a value of 18. And keep going all the way up to Z. K-I-S-S-I-N-G-E-R, by numerical value, is 666. What more do you need to know? <laughs> we can prove it right here, right now. In this same book, very classic, and by the way, it was bound so well that it's falling apart. I'm literally pulling pages out of this book. Uh, a title of the Pope of Rome is V-I-C-A... Oh, let me do it this way. V-I-C-A-R-I-V-S-F... I L I I D E I Vicarvis Philei Dei. That is a title of the Pope of Rome. If you'll notice that some of these letters are actually Greek, are Roman numerals. So we have to get rid of the A, the R, because these aren't these aren't numerals. They're just letters. Uh, you have to get rid of the S, so you have to get rid of the F, and the E. So how many is the letter V in Roman? Five. The I is one, the C is 100, this is one, the V is five, the I is one, the L is 50, one, one, 500 is the letter D, and one, that equals 666. Again, we proved it. I want to know who has no life to have figured this out. But this is what we're dealing with. You have this same author comes in, looks at Pope Paul VI. P-A-U-L-V-I is six characters. And the word Paulus has six letters. And he was the sixth pope named Paul. Six, six, six. He was elected on 621-63. Do you see the three sixes there? 
six, six, three plus two plus one equals six. Six, six, six. At the age of 66, he was the sixth pope to be elected in the 20th century, so 666. His crowning took place on 630, I'm sorry, get this right, 63. You see the sixes? My friends, this is why we don't study this. Because we see this kind of comical effort to try to find and name the Antichrist. I mean, the American colonists said George King, King George was the Antichrist, using to stir up foment in the American Revolution. You had the Pope during the Crusades saying that the Muslims were the Antichrist and whatever, whoever was the head of the Muslim armies was the Antichrist to stir up the people to go down there and kill that Antichrist. Oh, and there's one other person who's actually very well known as the Antichrist. Ever heard of Nikolai Jedi Carpathia? Does that ring any bells? Anybody read the novels Left Behind? That's the name of the Antichrist. So there's 75 million people who think that that's his name because they read it in a book. It happened to be fiction, but that was his name. In the late great planet Earth, um, the beast of Revelation was what? It wasn't a person. It was the Soviet Union. That the beast was going to come from the north and destroy and obviously that had to be Russia and, and their environs. In the 80s, the head of the Soviet Union had to be the Antichrist because he had the mark of the beast on his forehead. Gorbachev. Very common. You think this isn't, isn't modern? Only eight months ago, Rudy Giuliani tweeted that George Soros is the Antichrist. Obviously a theological statement. No, he's just, you know, it's like saying everybody's a fascist and everybody's Hitler remade. It's uh, to the point of becoming cliched in your arguments as you think of what is everything, every wacky thing you could think of. There's also another theory that's very common out there right now is that it's going to be an Islamic person. There was a book called The Islamic Antichrist written by a guy named Joel Richardson about four years ago, five years ago, and um, goes through this very long, involved argument how because of the spread of, mus of, is of the Islamic faith that eventually will be taking over the world and whoever they put in charge doesn't really quite describe whether he's going to be Sunni or what's the other one? Shiite. Shiite. You know, they got to figure that out first. But one of them, if they ever unify then they could be really powerful. Unfortunately, Joel Richardson is a 46-year-old decorative painter. This is the author who calls his writing on prophecy an expensive hobby. So even he doesn't think he has all the answers, but his book sold because he said something interesting about the end times. Isn't that incredible? That's just a little tiny touch. I haven't even gone anywhere close to the wide variety of what's out there. Um, 
So we have to go back to the text. What I had to do is I had to just simply stop, and I said this at the beginning, is stop all of these rabbit trails and stop getting too far off the biblical text and look at 2 Thessalonians and who is this man of lawlessness? What does the Bible say about him? What does this text say about him? And I want to give thanks to a guy named Matthew Holst for his post on a, a website called placefortruth.org that he helped me narrow it down. I've, I, I've adapted, I'm not quoting him, but I've adapted his material here for us because I think if we focus just on this text, we'll have a better idea of who is this man of lawlessness and what is he like. According to Paul, according to scripture. First, you'll find this in verse 3. The man of lawlessness is a precondition before the second coming. No question. Paul in the Bible is very clear here. We can't just throw this passage out because we don't understand it. We have to say, well, what is Paul trying to say to us by the inspiration of the Spirit to the church and therefore to us today? Who is this man of lawlessness? He's a precondition before the second coming. Whatever that second coming is, whatever you believe about the rapture, doesn't matter. The point is, is that there will be this man of lawlessness that will be coming, and there's no question that he's coming. You can find that in verse 9. This is the coming of the lawless one. I mean, there's not a when or if he might come. It is he is coming. There's no question. He will be a man. Not an institution and not an idea. He will be a physical person because he is a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction. The idea that you it could be an institution, okay, that's, that's an interesting concept, but institutions come and go. Is it an idea? Well, if you want to look into 1 John chapter 2, you will see where it says, uh, Children, in this last hour, if you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Throughout history, we've seen a lot of very evil people who have extraordinary followings. Some are evil to the point of death and killing. Other are evil to the point of deception, an extraordinary deception and get people taking their eyes off of Christ and turning them on themselves or turning them to various ideas that just simply have nothing to do with Scripture. Those are anti-Christs. They are pseudo-Christs. They are fake Christs. They're not the real deal. This guy is the epitome of them all. He's the worst of them all, and yet we will not recognize it necessarily because it will be so appealing. He will bring a rebellion. Verse 3. This rebellion, this apostasia, suggests 
if you look at the rest of the letter, that this apostasy is going to be in the church. Now, whether you want to say, you know, Steve, I'm not quite sure that this man of lawlessness is a member of the church, but he's going to attract people in the church. So he's going to be saying things that sound very Christian and sound very believable and very um, welcoming. And it's like, oh, well, I can believe that. Well, this is why Paul says, don't be deceived in any way by all these variations that are out there. This guy is going to make it really hard for you to figure out what is the truth. Next, the man of lawlessness will take a throne in the temple of God. There's no question. It's verse 4. One scholar, G.K. Beale, who is very well known as a solid, very solid evangelical scholar, says the temple of God in the New Testament always refers to Christ or to the church, not meaning the temple in Jerusalem. Because there are some that take that verse of the temple in Jerusalem, meaning the temple has to be rebuilt before Christ comes. We've heard that. The Dome of the Rock has to be destroyed. The temple has to be rebuilt. And, oh, goody, then Jesus will come. Well, that comes from a verse like this and some others in Revelation that suggests it but J.K. Beale says, well, if you look at every other place in the New Testament talking of the temple of God, they're not talking about the temple in Jerusalem necessarily. So, who knows? That's interesting. Next, the man of lawlessness will oppose every other object of worship. Verse 4. He will imitate the place of Christ where every knee shall bow. He will ask for fealty. He will ask for loyalty. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Next, and this is interesting, it opens up a whole other area of controversy, is in verse 6. The man of lawlessness is, is currently restrained. Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may reveal that, that in his time... Verse 7, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Well, that's interesting. So that means if there is a man of lawlessness, when he comes, the idea of this Antichrist is being restrained, but by whom? And by what? Well, again, theories abound. Uh, you have those who believe it's the government and the rule of law. It prevents the... Um, the widespread anarchy of lawlessness, because isn't that what the word lawlessness means, is anarchy? No one's in charge, there's no laws. But he's saying that the government laws, John Stott actually follows this, this position, which I thought was interesting. There are others that say it is the ministry and the activity of the church, that we stand in the gap, that we are preventing it from the, the man of lawlessness from coming and taking over. There's a third, fourth, and fifth, but I'll only go to the third. Uh, the third theory is that it's God. I kind of like that one. You know, God's kind of sovereign. Not kind of. He is sovereign. <laughs> and His choice, His power, is restraining until the time. God feels it is time. 
You want to go back and look at scripture when there was a time where God finally said no more. And in Genesis chapter 11, the floods came and destroyed the earth. He started over with Noah's family. They, there is a model of destruction that we see here. And God was restrained, but it was just total cacophony. You had the Nephilim running around. You had all sorts of weirdness going on. And God said, no, we're going to stop this. Num next one is number seven. The spirit of the man of lawlessness is already at work. We see that in verse seven. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Lawless In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that lawlessness is multiplied. There is a great apostasy and love is growing cold. So the idea or the antichrist spirit is already among us. Next, the man of lawlessness comes as an activity of Satan. We find that in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, lawless, lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, an outwardly, outward expression, and with all wicked deception and inward deception that deceives everyone who is perishing. And last, in verse 10, you find, oh, I, no, I'm sorry, do I have the right verse? Oh, verse 8. The lawlessness will be, will be killed by the Lord Jesus when he comes. He'll destroy him with a breath. When the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and brought to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Isaiah 11.4 says, The Lord will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. This is very strong language of the power of God in all of this. So, this has been kind of a broad sweep of the concept of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. We see what the scripture has to say. But I thought it was most fascinating to hear of a uh, from a scholar like Sam Storms, who's writing this 600-page volume on the end times. At the very end of his 20-some-odd pages on, first, on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he writes this, and I will use this as my conclusion because I could write this right along with him. I had hoped to be more definitive in my conclusions concerning the meaning of this passage. I had hoped that by studying the text closely, I might contribute something substantive to the never-ending attempt to identify the man of lawlessness or at least expand our grasp of what he will do upon his appearance. Alas, I fear I have failed in this regard. As much as I hate to say so, I feel compelled to agree with Augustine, who wrote, I frankly confess I don't know what Paul meant in this text. And I don't. We know what the scripture says. That there is a man of lawlessness. We know that is, he is coming. We know that Christ is coming. But when? On the timeline? Okay. 
Fine, let's argue about it. Let's break apart churches. Let's prevent people like Tom from speaking at a a church because he has a different view of the end times. That's foolishness, my friends. We can have fascinating conversations. And they're interesting. But when they become a litmus test on whether or not you belong in the body of Christ or in our body, you have to think like I think, I'm sorry. I I end up getting a little nervous about this. And I mentioned this to Lisa last night. I said, if those, those of you are here when we were studying the book of Daniel, you'll notice that I skipped the entire chapter nine. I did not deal with the 70 weeks of Daniel in our study because I felt it was almost a tangent that would have taken us off our understanding of of the sweep of God's work in history and get involved in detail that, you know, it's fascinating. My goodness, it's fascinating. But can we be definitive? And does it really build the body? At that point, at that moment, I decided not to. And no one noticed, other than Lisa. Lisa said, yeah, I remember you, you missed that, but... You know, no big deal. Nobody complained anyway. At least I didn't get a letter to the editor. Um, but there's a reason why we have to be careful when we approach these texts. Because people get, they dig their heels in. Say, this is the way it is. You, you know there's six theories on this one issue that you're digging your heels in. You can be right, but you could also be wrong. So let's have a nice, fascinating discussion and go our separate ways. It would be like two people who are married, who happen to be our daughter and son-in-law. One loves the the Green Bay Packers and the other loves the Seattle Seahawks. And when they play, they put a black line through the middle of their house. And one can be on one side and one can be on the other. Ne'er the twain shall meet. But then when the game is over, they take the black line off, they hug, you know, and everybody, you know, it's, it's just part of that silliness that you make it into where you don't destroy a relationship over trivia. Well, we need to end our time and hand it over to the Goodmans. So thank you.